some time ago, brothers and sisters, uh, I preached here in Owen Sound a sermon on Genesis 37, at the beginning of the story of Joseph, and one on Genesis 39, when he ended up in, uh, in Egypt. Now, these were the first two sermons of a series um, that I'd like to continue with in the coming weeks. Now, it has been a while, so most of you may not remember, however, the story as such is very well known, so it won't be too difficult to get back into it. Genesis 37, that was the first one, it tells us about Joseph as God's whistleblower. Now, things are not well in the family of Jacob, and Joseph, who was only 17 years old at that time, is the one who sees his brothers walk away from the Lord and despise the covenant of God. And he warns against that. Now his brothers hate him for it and they sell him into slavery. Now Genesis 38, the next chapter, is not about Joseph, but it illustrates in the life of Judah how the people of God are being sucked into the immoral culture of the pagan Canaanites. And then Genesis 39 tells how Joseph, as a slave in Egypt, becomes the, 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 the highly regarded house steward of his master Potiphar until he ends up in jail for something he did not even do. Now in all this, we have been looking for God to unfold his own plan. And today we will pick it up again the story in Genesis 41. So I invite you to take your Bibles and then we open the scriptures in Genesis 41, which is our scripture reading. A part of that is the focus of our text. Genesis 41. And the focus of our text is verse 37 to 46, but we do read the whole chapter. Genesis 41. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gone, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gone cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second dream. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, and he said, I remember my faults this day, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. 
And it came to pass just as he interpreted for us. So it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and he brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gone, such ugliness I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and the ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there is no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east winds are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. For the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will bring, will shortly bring it to pass. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the, land, for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. That's where our text starts. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took a signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee! So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no man may lift his hand and foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paniah, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And that's the end of the text for the focus of the preaching. We continue to read to the end of the chapter. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of the famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the lands. This is the word of God. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this, uh, this must have been a pretty overwhelming day in Joseph's life. You can imagine that it was not so easy for the brand new Egyptian viceroy to catch the sleep that night. His head must have been spinning. What a dramatic turnaround. One morning you wake up as a poor slave in jail, an unknown prisoner for whom no one really cared. And in the evening of the same day you find yourself second in command in the political hierarchy of one of the most powerful empires in the world at that time. That's bewildering. Think of it. About 13 years ago, Joseph, only 17 years old, had ended up in Egypt, sold as a slave. And initially it was not so bad. Potiphar trusted him and treated him well. But a few years later he was thrown in jail for something he did not do. Now at first he may have hoped to get out soon, when the truth would come out, but that didn't happen. 
It was nice, of course, to win the favor of the prison warden, as it says, but they didn't give him his freedom back. And then after he had explained the dreams of, of, of the cupbearer and the baker, his hopes were up again. That was the previous chapter, chapter 40. But no such luck for him. You remember that he asked the cupbearer, it was at the end of chapter 40, remember me. And please mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of here. But at the end of that verse it says that the man did not remember Joseph. He just forgot about Joseph. <coughs> There's another bit of disappointment. So here he is, cut off from his father's house, cut off from the, from the covenant family, no future in Egypt but dying in this dungeon. The years go by and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You wonder, were there perhaps moments that Joseph was thinking, where is God where you need him most? Was the Lord still with him? It's true, Joseph had nothing left. And yet, Joseph did not give up his trust in God's grace, God's faithfulness. Oh yeah, it was a trust without any perspective. It was a trust without any sign of coming relief. It was a trust that seemed to be without any real hope. Does that kind of trust make sense? <coughs> All he had was God's promise. Yeah, his, his, his own dreams when he was a boy in his father's house. It doesn't seem too much, right? But for Joseph it was enough. He had nothing but his faith. There are times in your life that that's all that you have. Your faith, your trust. There's nothing else. And then you will also learn that that is all that you need. And then suddenly God makes clear how he continues his work through Joseph. The Lord puts Joseph in charge of Egypt for the sake of his covenant and his covenant people. That's the message this morning. The Lord put Joseph in charge of Egypt for the sake of his covenant. <coughs> well, congregation, that was indeed a totally unexpected turnaround, right? When the mighty Egyptian Pharaoh said to Joseph, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall listen to you as you command them. That's in verse 40. What is, he, <coughs> what is he saying? What is he talking about? Is he talking to me? When he got up that morning, he couldn't have dreamed about this. In, in his wildest imagination. But God is acting. Yes? Think of that. It is God who is acting. And the almighty ruler of the universe knows exactly what he is doing. He is the one who brings the slave Joseph, the foreign prisoner, into contact with Egypt's powerful king. And to get there, God has been using all kinds of ways and all kinds of remarkable events. Until that day, there was no indication whatsoever that Joseph would be able to leave his prison as a free man. Even after the promising encounter with the cupbearer, it still took two years, two whole years in, in, in verse 1, before something happened. Think of that, two years. Right, that's a long time. If all you can do is wait and wait and wait and wait, 
You don't know whether anything is going to happen, and if if anything is going to happen, when it is going to happen. By nature, most of us will not be very good at that. Right, waiting for something you look forward to, without even knowing if it is really going to come and when. That kind of waiting is very frustrating. Even after an hour already. How often are we not impatient? We can be impatient towards God. You're sick and you ask God for healing. You have no work and you ask God to find you a job so you can provide for your family. But nothing happens. Nothing happens. Things are not changing. Or what happens is the opposite of what you have been asking for. You are in an abusive relationship. Or one of your children walks away from the Lord. You pray because you trust in God and, 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 and in the help of God. But is God really listening? The Bible says so, but nothing is changing. Why is there no answer? Does God ignore your needs? For Joseph, his way through life was a mystery. Joseph must have been groping in the dark, trying to find answers. The mighty God of his father Jacob, what is he up to? Now he did not give up the trust that in one way or another all this has a purpose in God's plan, but he had no idea how. How often did you have the same feeling? <coughs> in the meantime, although Joseph didn't know it, the Lord has been working on a new move during the night just before this remarkable day. He disturbed the sleep of Egypt's king with some weird dreams. <coughs> now the kings of those ancient empires were usually seen as descendants of the gods, and so the dreams of those kings were often seen as divine messages. And you know what's interesting? The Bible tells us that sometimes the Lord uses that way of thinking to send dreams that indeed reveal his will, even to people who don't know him. Think of the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's in Daniel 2 and Daniel 4. However, it always turns out for the sake of his own people, for the sake of the covenant, for the good and the progress of his work of salvation. Here too, God Almighty has his own plans with the Egyptian Empire. Pharaoh's dreams are enough to leave his mind deeply troubled. Pharaoh has two different dreams, but as Joseph points out, in verse 25, the dreams are one. What the king saw was really bizarre. Yes? Seven fat cows were swallowed up by seven ugly and thin cows. Then seven full ears of grain were swallowed up by seven withered and thin ones. Now, as every farmer knows, and most of us, even if you're not a farmer, will probably know as well, cows don't eat cows. And, and, and ears of grain don't eat other ears of grain. And so the king suspects an unfavorable divine message. I mean, somehow the fact that what is thin and ugly prevails over what is good and looks good must be a negative 
message from the gods. Bad news, frightening news, but no one knows what to make of it, no one. Even his magicians have no idea. Egypt's collective ancient wisdom turns out to be useless. And, and what's going on? It, it's totally unsettling. The Egyptian pharaohs were seen as all-powerful rulers. They governed as divine lords, they were worshipped as gods. The sovereign power of the pharaoh guaranteed peace and prosperity for all who honored them. And then the God of heaven comes and he shows that real sovereign power and glory belongs to him. He needs to do only one little thing. He is messing up the king's sleep. Recognize the glory of our God. By disturbing Pharaoh's peace of mind with some weird dreams, what is God going to do? He's going to change the history of this most powerful political power on earth at that time. And why does God do that? He does so to realize his own plan. His plan to save his people Israel. His plan to bring Jesus Christ into the world. His plan to save you and me. That's the connection. The holy God rules our history and he still does today for the sake of his promises. Well, at that moment, the moment the cupbearer remembers his jail time. All right, yeah, two years ago, and he remembers the Hebrew slave. He might be able to help out here. Do you see the pattern of God's providence? It's amazing. He leads everything. He leads all those encounters, everyone's way of life. He leads it toward this point in unraveling the mystery of Joseph's destination. This is how God works. This is how God works all the time. This is how God works today. What happens in your life and my life is part of his plan. It's part of God's big plan. And from the Bible we know something about that big plan, but here is our problem. Most of the time, we have no idea how our personal experience fit in his big plan. And that, that can be hard to deal with if you don't see that. Especially when you suffer, when we struggle with what's happening in our lives. How in the world can my pain, my disease, my misery and my hardship, whatever it is, how can those things be purposeful for God's plan? Sometimes, if you have gone through something like that, you may see it in hindsight, but not always. But try to remember, I may not see a purpose for what I'm dealing with, but that does not mean that there is no purpose. In our story, the God of the covenant is on the move. After all those years, he releases Joseph from prison and puts him suddenly, and it's, it's interesting, it's one sweeping move out of nothing into the center of Egyptian politics to take care of the security of the food supply in Egypt. Just like that. Why did he do that? For the sake of his work, for the sake of his people. The mighty Pharaoh is so desperate that he is willing to share his dreams with this poor Hebrew slave he had never met before. He hopes, of course, that Joseph will be able to interpret the dreams that he had. And Joseph does not disappoint him. 
But notice how he gives all the glory to God. God is the one who lets the Egyptian ruler know what he is going to do. The Lord alone is in control when Egypt is heading for seven good years with abundance of food and after that, seven years of famine. The Egyptians, uh, brothers and sisters, were not uh, unfamiliar with years that food was scarce. Ancient Egypt was a prosperous country, but the wealth of Egypt was almost completely dependent on the Nile, the river. The annual flooding of the banks of the Nile made farming possible in large areas. But you never knew for sure in some years the flooding failed to come and then there was usually nothing or very little to harvest. So here the Almighty God, he is going to show what to do for the next 14 years. That's kind of frightening. What can you do when God's plan turns out to control everything? That's what happens here. God's plan does not only control agriculture, but the whole economy, all of social life in Egypt, and the politics in Egypt, and, and that in, in a country where they don't even know God. We may look at this as a difficult problem, and God is in control to the point that everything is governed by him. What is there for us to do? Do we have any responsibility, our actions, our choices? Do they make a difference when everything is God's plan anyway? Are people not just powerless puppets in God's hand when he fulfills his word? When God reveals that there is going to be a famine, there will be a famine. Nothing you can do about it. What else can you do than hunker down and wait for what's coming? Apparently, Joseph did not think so. His response shows you that, that, that knowing that God controls everything should not make you passive and sit down like, well, God does everything anyway, so what? No, no, it prompts the question, what does God mean to do? No, what does God want me to do with the fact that I know that he is in control? Here the question was, how do you prepare yourself for what, no, for, for what you know is coming? Most of the time we don't know what's coming, right? But that does not mean that you cannot prepare yourself. Today you need to embrace your Savior, Jesus. And, and you need to hold on to your trust in God's love and care in the plans he has for you. You have to respond in faith in all the things that come from God's hand. Whatever he sends you to deal with in your life. Now Pharaoh and his officials are, are, are quite impressed by Joseph's explanation. And even when Joseph gives some unsolicited advice on how to deal with that, they're not offended. They, they don't say, hang on, who do you think you are? You're just a slave. No, no, they think what Joseph is telling them is a brilliant idea. Why is that? What do they know about Joseph and his organizational skills? Probably not a lot. But they do know one thing. And Pharaoh puts it into words. Joseph is a man in whom is the Spirit of God and to whom God has given discernment and 
wisdom. Now, that does not mean that Pharaoh confesses his personal trust in the Lord. It's not the point. Pharaoh's not getting rid of the 2,000 gods in the Egyptian pantheon. But look beyond what Pharaoh is thinking. Do you see the God Almighty? See his glory? He is forcing the king of this powerful empire to acknowledge the God of Joseph as the one who controls Egypt. God forces the proud Pharaoh to appoint this 30 years old foreign slave fresh from prison instead of an older and more experienced official and politician among his, his people. Joseph is entrusted with the responsibility to manage the food distribution for the coming 14 years throughout all of Egypt. Do you see the connections here? Through Joseph, God's grace will benefit Egypt. And through Egypt, it will benefit the surrounding nations. And as we will see later, it will benefit God's people, Israel. Through Joseph, Egypt will serve the grace of God. Many, many centuries later, this God is going to fulfill his promises for all the families of the earth in the Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, now, Pharaoh doesn't waste any time. Pharaoh takes action right away. Joseph had said the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now that makes it pretty urgent to take action. So after very little preparation, the official ordination takes place. The king himself leads the ceremony. He confers on Joseph his new dignity and he declares, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Verse 41. Wow, it's perplexing, right? Joseph perhaps had pinched himself. Is this some weird hallucination? Is it for real? Through this brief ceremony, the Hebrew slave Joseph from the covenant family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob finds himself all of a sudden in the center of something he never even dreamed of. He has become what we would call Viceroy in Egypt. Now, Joseph was probably not the only one with the title of Viceroy. Egyptian pharaohs used to grant such honorable positions to reward people who had done something special for the king and for the nation. In Joseph's case, we get the impression that he was given special responsibility for, for the economy and, and for agriculture. With Egypt prosperity being so dependent on the Nile River, those were, of course, important sections. So the section agriculture and economy were important in, uh, in a country like Egypt. And even more so, of course, in light of what God had revealed about the coming 14 years. And then Joseph also receives the insignia, the symbols that come with this new dignity and authority. That's verse 42. Pharaoh's signet ring would allow him to issue regulations and laws in Egypt and seal those as if they were coming directly from Pharaoh himself. He had full royal authority. Then they get a fancy outfit 
of fine linen. It may have reminded Joseph of the ornamented rope his father had given him when he was a boy. And finally he got to wear a gold chain of office around his neck, usually set with precious jewels. We know that from archaeological evidence in Egypt. And after all those ceremonies, Joseph is presented to the people of the city. We read in verse 43, that was done in such a way that there could be no doubt about his powerful position and his absolute authority. The Egyptians need to know that there was only one way to survive the coming years of famine. Submit to Joseph and follow his instructions. That's it. When all the public formalities are over, you can't imagine that Joseph was feeling dazed. From unknown slave in jail to political celebrity. It's a bit much, right, in a few hours. But in what sounds like a more personal conversation in verse 44, let's say after this official things were over, Pharaoh would kind of sit down with a glass of wine and Joseph, and, and, and Pharaoh confirms what's happening. It's true, he says, from now on, you will have almost unlimited power over everyone in Egypt. Only one will be greater than you. That's me, obviously. Other than that, you do whatever you think is best. It's astonishing how fast things change. All of a sudden, Joseph's persistent trust in the Lord, the God of the covenant, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is given a new and promising perspective. Oh yes, all this was the result of Pharaoh's absolute power and Pharaoh's respect for scary dreams and for people who could interpret those. That's true. But in the end, it was not the Pharaoh... It was the Lord. It was the almighty God of heaven and earth. He disturbed the king's sleep. He scared the living daylight out of him with those dreams. In other words, our holy God is letting us know that everything and everybody must serve the fulfillment of his promises. The unfolding of his plan. What he is doing here in Egypt, he is doing to move forward the plan of salvation. To move forward his hope for a world that is lost in sin. And for this purpose God himself directs all of history towards the coming of Jesus the Savior. And in Jesus the Savior all the families of the earth will be blessed. God does so here by directing the history of Jacob and his family in Canaan and in Egypt. A few times in Joseph's life's history we read that it says the Lord was with Joseph. Now, there have been times that it didn't look like that. Not at all. But now, look again. As it turns out, all the way, not only this moment, but all the way from the very beginning, the Lord has been working. He has used all Joseph's experience to prepare him for this day. So what did Joseph learn? Yes, no matter how dark or hopeless it may look like, no light at the end of the tunnel, God can things turn things around. Just like that, Joseph's faith and trust has not been put to shame. And yet, even at, 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 at this amazing turn of events, the purpose of it all is still not clear. When Joseph was thinking of his own dreams in chapter 37, he must have wondered about that. Is that ever going to be fulfilled? And how and when? 
And what do we learn? We know what Joseph did not know yet. The Lord is going to use all this to protect his people. Not only from starvation, but also from spiritual ruin in Canaan. And so today you and I may entrust ourselves to the same God, our God, the God who has shown his amazing grace in Jesus, the God who loves you so much that he gave his son to fill your life with hope for now and for the future. Our roads, brothers and sisters, may also be long and difficult with no light at the end of the tunnel. And sometimes you wonder what God is up to. Do you wonder sometimes how long it is going to take for the promises of God to be fulfilled? And yet, regardless of unexpected twists and turns, frightening events that take you by surprise, you and I can move on with nothing but the word of the living God. Back to the last part of the story. Soon after this, Pharaoh is also going to make sure that that Joseph will feel right at home in the Egyptian society, that he will be accepted by the Egyptian nobility, the political and religious bigwigs in the country. That will make his job a lot easier. First of all, he gives him a real Egyptian name, Safanat Pania. Now, our opinions differ as to what it means, but it has to do with to save or to give life. And then he arranges Joseph's marriage. The girl's name is Asenath, and her father's name is Potiphera, and both names refer to Egyptian gods. That's not so strange, because Joseph's father-in-law was the leading high priest in Egypt's most important temple at that time, the national center for worshiping the sun god. Can't you picture that? After 13 years in Egypt, and about half the time spent in prison, this 30 years old child of God finds himself right in the heart of the Egyptian culture and the Egyptian religion. How's that going to work? Was he now supposed to worship Egyptian gods? The God of his wife and the God of his father-in-law? Was he in a position to refuse that? Now you may remember Daniel. Daniel lived more than a thousand years later. And he was given uh, the Babylonian name Belteshazzar. And he became a high-ranking government official in the Babylonian and Persian empires. But he consistently, Daniel, consistently refused to worship the pagan gods. He remained faithful to the God of Israel. Now we don't know for sure how Joseph handled it. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about it. But so far we have come to know Joseph as a man who kept his faith and trust in the Lord. That being said, it's good to realize that even for Joseph, his new position, with all its wealth, his prestige, his authority, came with new temptations. I mean, when the world respects you for who you are as a Christian, use it to glorify God by what you say and what you do. Serve the Lord faithfully when he calls you to serve, even in high positions. But you can never let your guard down. You know, it's easy for each one of us to become comfortable in a pagan culture. There's always the temptation to just enjoy the good life 
and to compromise your faith and put worshipping the only true God on the back burner. There would also be a temptation for Joseph. Well, Joseph gets to work. There was lots to do in the coming years, stimulating agriculture, improving irrigation systems, building grain elevators to store the crops, you name it. And so the first thing he does in verse 46 is making a round trip through Egypt to become familiar with the lay of the land, to get to know the farmers, to see what needed to be improved, what needed to be done, learn other things that would help him to develop his plans. Now, you wonder, you wonder if it ever crossed his mind to visit his family back in Canaan. I mean, now he was in a position to do that. He doesn't seem to be interested. In the names of his sons Manasseh and Ephraim, for 51 and 52, he expresses that for him, Egypt is now the land of his future. That's the country where he belongs. And that's true. God Almighty has brought him there to serve his purpose, his care for his people Israel. In Joseph's new role, God himself is fulfilling his promise. God is on his way to sending into the world the head of all powers and kings, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Christ Jesus, the one in whom not only Egypt, but in whom all the families will be blessed of the earth. How is he going to do that? Now Joseph had no idea. But he just takes his place, and he does his work among the Egyptians. And he seems to be okay with that. God's grace has taught him that as he waits for the Lord, his task and future are now here. This is not the time to look back. This is not the time to return to his father's house. And yet, what about those dreams? When he was still a boy, many years ago, that question will keep haunting him in the years to come. Obviously, there are still promises to be fulfilled. There is more to come. But Joseph knows that the Lord, the God of the covenant, will not forsake his promise. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will remain true to his word. All he has to do is to be faithful in the place and the work that God him had called him to be. Trusting that God will continue to surprise him. Are you prepared to do that? In your own life? Life is full of unexpected twists and turns, right? You never know what happens. You never know what's around the corner. Things are going well. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a dark and frightening place. And then what? What is God up to? And you don't know what comes next. You don't know, I don't know. But you do know two things. There are still promises to be fulfilled. That's one. And the second is that our God will always remain true to his word. So keep doing what God calls you to do every day, wherever he calls you to go. And trust that the one who orchestrated this dramatic change in Egypt... He is the God who will also continue to surprise you and me. Amen.